Welcome to That Privacy Podcast, brought to you by OneTrust Data Guidance in association with Hogan Lovells. Welcome to That Privacy Podcast, a live recording of our uh, ad hoc and uh, informal privacy data protection related podcast uh, here live at the IEP Data Protection Intensive. So first of all, thanks everybody for joining, really uh, pleased and uh, slightly unnerved to see such a great audience here today, but um, I hope you enjoy the next hour of uh, kind of uh, a, a conversation between my colleagues and myself regarding uh, a number of topics, including UK data protection reform. For those of you who haven't uh, ever listened to that privacy podcast, it's something we've done actually now for three years, more than three years. Um, you know, every couple of months we kind of get together wherever we are and uh, and have a chat through the latest hot topics or current issues that our clients and and the general privacy community is is putting forward. So we hope that you enjoy uh, today. And if you'd like to check us out on, I think it's on iTunes or whatever, wherever you get your podcasts, <laughs> um, yeah, you can you can look at previous and, and future episodes. So to introduce, my name is David Longford at uh, OneTrust, and my colleagues to the right. I'd be surprised if many people in, in the room don't know one or both of the gentlemen here, but uh, Alexis Katafidis is a senior counsel also at OneTrust, and Eduardo Oostran is co-chair of privacy and cybersecurity at Hogan Levels. Hi. Hello. <laughs> cool. So let's get started. So today we're going to go through a, a list of topics. I think we're going to bring, bring it up on, on the slide in a second, all kind of concerning where we are at the moment with UK data protection reform, um, what the kind of very interesting, some people think exciting, others think quite nerve-wracking changes that would be, are being proposed, uh, where we are with those, and, and yeah, a few kind of comments and ideas on where we might go next. Before we jump in, though, I wondered if we could just start with uh, like a minute or two on how we got to where we are, because I think like I don't know about anyone else in the audience, but like so many things are happening, like both on the privacy side or data protection regulatory side, but political side, societal side. Sometimes we forget like how <laughs> how much has happened in the last few years. So I just made a couple of notes. Please jump in if you want to uh, add anything that I've missed. There's, there's quite a lot. For me, in the early, I'd say, 2010s, there's kind of two tracks that or themes that emerged that kind of bring us to where we are today with questions over what the, the framework in the UK will look like. One is uh, regarding data protection. Obviously, we've had you know, the emergence of uh, an EU regulation from early conversations uh, around the ideas of that, for the Commission putting forward proposals, GDPR becoming uh, coming into force, and then the two-year transition period up to 2018. That all kind of was happening, but at the same time, on the political side, we had yeah, a very different kind of conversation happening you know, in the UK, the growth of the idea of the UK uh, independent from the EU, uh, the idea of an in-out referendum, if anyone can remember that as a campaign pledge back in 2013. Uh, the referendum, 2016, again, kind of two very different tracks, but seem seemingly coming together at this point. And then, uh, you know, after a couple of years of <laughs> kind of watching too much Newsnight and uh, <laughs> thinking about what could actually happen with, with Brexit, eventually the Conservative um, election win in 2019, which for me kind of confirmed the idea that, okay, this is happening, this is going ahead, and lots of stuff will change. And then, in my head, the idea of UK data protection reform, if I try and remember, then became something of a more substantial evolution of where we would get to, whereas maybe it was a little bit hypothetical in 2016, 17, 18. <laughs> so, yeah, quick kind of, <laughs> don't want to be a history lesson, but that's kind of a mixture of my recollections and a, and a bit of Googling <laughs> on how we uh, got to where we are today. 
what uh, I think is super interesting to think about is is the um, the evolution of that from a, a, a regulatory perspective or policy perspective, because we had two questions uh, really from from that election in 2019, where Brexit was pretty much rubber stamped. One was about UK adequacy, and you know that you know was sort of let's put put to bed <laughs> short term in 2021. 20, uh, and the other question was, what would actually the new regulatory framework in the UK look like? You know, what are we going to see? Like, which way is it going to go? I remember in a conversation we had a couple of six months ago or something, you were like, well, of course it's going to be very different because what's the point of Brexit if it's not, not going to be different? Slightly tongue-in-cheek the way you were saying it, but like, I thought that was a really good point. Like, we're not going to expect no change, are we? So you know, let's try and anticipate and, and, and think about what it could be. And... And looking, and again, looking back in a little bit of research for this, I saw that the first kind of noises came out from government uh, around uh, a new framework or a new direction as it became labelled later in early 2021. So that was kind of um, where things became to you know, get a bit more real. So trip down memory lane <laughs> from you guys. Anything to add there just to, to bring us up to where we are today in, in a societal sense or... So, I mean, it's a good summary that you've made. I think I remember a red bus, <laughs> then a referendum, and then the rest of his, is history, obviously. <laughs> and in the middle of that, we have the idea of reforming the UK data protection framework. And the, the, the challenge is that it's very, very difficult to take the, the Brexit element out of it mm -hmm. because it's, it's, it's yep. so pervasive. The question is, can we, can, is it possible to look at the, the situation as it is now with the UK having a data protection framework, which is, of course, based on this, the same framework that the, the, the EU has, yep. the GDPR, but now operating outside the EU, and having seen the GDPR in operation and having seen how it is being interpreted and forced and having seen how technology is changing everything, is there a better way of regulating data protection? And I think the same question applies to the EU, by the way. And if the UK was still part of the EU, we would probably be having a similar type of debate. But of course, the, the, the big difference, of course, is that because the UK is now outside the EU, <coughs> first, the UK can do whatever it, want, whatever it wants to, to, mm -hmm. to do. But also, but also, any, and this is more important, any changes that are made to this framework are going to be looked at, mm -hmm. both in the UK and outside the UK, m m more specifically, uh, through the lens of Brexit. Mm -hmm. What does this mean? in terms of uh, is the UK um, trying to make a political point about changing the law for just to be different? Or is the UK being, well, the UK has always been a little bit of an outlier and a little bit different from, from other jurisdictions in Europe in, in the context of data protection, possibly more pragmatic, possibly closer to the ground, possibly anticipating issues. Richard Thomas, in 2008, anticipated all the issues that led to the GDPR. So changing the UK taking the lead in reforming data protection law 
is not necessarily the result of Brexit. It's the result of the way in which the UK has always operated. The question is, how can we clever, be clever enough to do it without being tainted by the political issues that are around Brexit? Yeah, fascinating. It's very hard to, to separate the two, isn't it, sometimes, with, with la particularly language being yeah, quite common. A Alex, is there anything to add on the story? Well, I don't know about the story, but it, <laughs> it's, it is an interesting time on the reform, to your point, Eduardo, on um, uh, the, the time that the UK is having a look at the reform because, you know, the GDPR will not stay the same for forever. I mean, there has been discussions within the Commission of reviewing the GDPR as well. Um, so I think it is an interesting time for the UK to be having a look at reforming the law and seeing whether that, in fact, may influence discussions. I mean, and that is, to your point, Eduardo, one of the um, aspects of the dimension is that, if, you know, from an international context, um, can there be a new approach or some changes that are taken on board in other jurisdictions, the EU being obviously um, one of the main things we talk about here in the UK. Um, or the US, maybe. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I think it's an interesting time to be having a look at it. And I know we've been talking about the UK reforms in a couple of other sessions. Um, I mean, to your point, Eduardo, on change, is it is it radical? I know we heard from the commissioner yesterday that it shouldn't be seen as radical. But, you know, there were a few questions out in the audience that I know, you know, there are concerns in the community about things about the removal of the DPO requirement, things like the, the removal of the DPIA requirement. And um, I know, you know, the ICO has issued their consultation uh, response to that. Um, and, you know, there there are things to be looked at in greater detail. Probably but not a one-word answer. Define <laughs> uh, radical, then, because... <laughs> Um, if you define radical as very um, intrinsically changing the the basis for data protection law as a fundament as a, as a as a framework that is aimed at protecting a fundamental right at the same time that is trying to facilitate the use of data as an asset, I don't think the UK is going to radically change that. I think. Most countries around the world are trying to address this, that issue, and the direction of travel is slightly different from country to country, but it is all about understanding the fact that there are different uh, sizes of players, different uses of data, some are riskier than others, some are, are more the technologically uh, sort of dependent, and so on. So from that perspective, I. I don't think that there is a desire or indeed a, a wish to, to, for the UK to be radical in that respect. But if you, if you define radical as a way of looking at how, uh, for example, the GDPR has been interpreted in recent times where you see data protection authorities in Europe taking a very uh, extreme way of the law and a very absolutist way of the law that uh, there is no room for uh, sort of the risk-based approach, which is such an intrinsic part of, of the GDPR. Yes, I think the UK will be radical because I think the UK, uh, as, as it was, again, uh, all those years ago when reforming the, direct, the directive, 
um, the, the UK will try to be radical in terms of questioning how to, to apply the law in the real world. So then, and, and to be honest, I, I would welcome that. I think most of us would welcome that. And what are some of the things, I mean, that you would welcome that you see from the, uh, obviously it's still a con consultation at the moment, we will see what comes out of it. What are some of the positive things? Because I know you and your team worked on a response from Hogan Lovells as well. What are some of the things that you saw as positive from the DCMS's paper? So I think we need to recover some of the lost ground that actually inspired the GDPR around risk-based. And risk-based is all about appreciating and acknowledging that not all users of data are equal, that not um, all um, the sort of uh, approaches to, the, to data protection compliance need to follow the same, the same playbook. And applying, again, a degree of, of common sense in terms of the resources that organizations can deploy really, and should be, should be expected to deploy. And then also the priorities that, frankly, regulators have. Because, again, regulators in, in, in this world are not, don't have a, a sort of uh, resources that are unlimited. And therefore, like every single organization, they need to prioritize on the things that matter most. And that's, the, that's the, what I see as a positive development, that I think if we, if we go in the direction of saying, okay, what, what, is, what is the priority? What is, uh, what is doable in practice? How do we, with all these resources that we have and the, the direction of travel of, of technology, how do we tackle thi things before they happen? but in a way that is constructive, not in a way that is, the reaction is, oh, we think this is, this is not going to be a good development, so let's ban it. Mm -hmm. You can ban technology. You know, like, like the, uh, even, even the most um, intrusive technologies, like facial recognition, they are already out, out of there functioning. So the best we can hope for is to regulate that technology in a way that is effective. And, and I think that's, that's what we should be looking at. And from a practical perspective, I mean, for a lot of, a lot of um, you know, the audience, a lot of our customers, they're operating, you know, across the EU and across the UK as well. I mean, do you expect from a practical perspective that organizations are going to actually change that much in terms of their own program? I mean, you know, if things like ROPA are not required... I mean, we're still going to be doing it elsewhere in Europe, right? We're still going to be appointing DPOs. We're still going to be doing a lot of these things to comply with the GDPR. Are we going to suddenly, like, change things just for the but, UK? But you need to appreciate that there isn't a single organization out there that has sort of made it, you know, has <laughs> said, okay, we, we've spent two or three years building this privacy compliance program. We've built it. It's done we're done, and now we're not gonna want to scale that down to suit the UK. That's not the reality. The reality is this is work in progress for everybody, and, and the, tar the target is moving all the time anyway. So the law also needs to adapt to that moving target, mm -hmm. and the way in which you approach compliance needs to adapt to that moving target. So I don't think it's incompatible to say, oh, 
let's just, for the UK, to add their thinking to how the law should be interpreted and should be applied. And that's really going to distort the perfect compliance plans that every organization has. Yeah. You see, because I think ultimately, I think, and, and, and obviously, if the UK gets it right in the sense that, it, again, it's, it's, it's an approach that meets reality, organizations will, will welcome that. And I'll tell you another thing that I know we discussed uh, even last year. You could take almost the, the, the UK approach, whatever comes out of this reform, as a building block, mm -hmm. as a way in which you can say, okay, data protection is not, by the way, the GDPR only. It's a global uh, management challenge. And therefore, we need a starting point we need a, a sort of, again, a building block. Where do we start? And it could well be that a modern and realistic framework provides that building block. And it could well be that the UK framework, by the way, as it has been over the years, it's not, it's, again, this is not radically new, the UK uh, and the, the, the way, for example, in which the ICO has traditionally approached some of the most complex issues, which again is with a m practical mindset, but it's still the mindset of a regulator that, that feels very responsible for getting this right and helping organizations get it right and helping data subjects uh, to, with, with their needs, then you could use that model as a basis for even a, a global compliance approach. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a lot to be said for, for, for changing the parameters. And as much as a, as a model as, as the GDPR is, is not something that is static and then that say you just, you just build your magic cathedral based on the GDPR and that's it. And, and anything that doesn't resemble that is not good enough. Maybe that's just a reflection of the fact that the GDPR is a, is a piece of regulation was so significant, so um, you know, world-changing, uh, and, and people aren't maybe thinking of it as a flexible, uh, or not flexible, but an, uh, something that will evolve and, and grow, because we're so close to it being implemented anyway, really. We're only a couple of years, couple of years on. Um, good, good start. I like it. Uh, what, are the, what are the some of the areas that people feel most nervous about in terms of thinking, you know, people in the UK and working in privacy and data mm -hmm. protection, whether they're thinking about personal, you know, um, personal rights, let's say human rights, or um, that sort of things, or you know how they how this will operate in practice. What are th some of the concerns you think people have top of mind? So, at one level, I think that, mm, we were discussing earlier, as part of the the conference, the the uncertainty yeah. of if things change and I'm, I'm, I'm working towards something and things change is what I'm working towards going to, to help. So at a sort of macro level, that's it. Then there are individual issues and of course a, a key issue that everyone is worried about is what if the UK loses its adequacy? Right. And that is a real, a real concern mm -hmm. because uh, two years ago, uh, when you know, and Brexit was kind of um, again a moving target. That at times it was going a little bit better, but at times it was going ba really badly. Yeah. And uh, we were all thinking, oh, what if this? Yeah. Who's in control? <laughs> well, this is could be such an acrimonious divorce and yeah. such a different. We could um, stumble into that situation. Yeah, and, and what if the the EU 
um, takes revenge on the UK sure. for, for leaving them and, uh, and doesn't give the UK... We didn't know anything, did we? We had no idea. Well, <laughs> you... You might have known some things. Everything, was, uh, everything is but how, very emotional. But how much of a concern is that, though, Eduardo? Because, I mean, we've seen... There's inadequacy. Yeah. I mean, uh, okay, so now, now, you know, we, at that time there was a lot of concern whether we would get adequacy, and I think there was a lot of relief that, you know, it was... Um, done. Although at the time, I remember talking, and you were like, "Don't worry about it." Then <laughs> it's a couple. It's a couple of years later. You're still saying, "Don't worry about it." Um, so relax, everybody. Um, but I mean, you know, listen. We have other jurisdictions that are considered at Canada. Canada has its uh, a very similar, in some ways, uh, framework to what the UK is proposing around privacy management programs and um, kind of taking a bit of a different approach to accountability is considered adequate. We have new jurisdictions coming through from the Commission. Is it a concern? Is it that realistic a concern that we'll lose adequacy? I think because it's been hyped so much with the UK, the UK data protection reform, it's almost, again, anything that is touched by politics get hyped and get distorted. But um, Yes, obviously, it could be. It's, it's not beyond the realms of imagination to think that the UK starts saying the entire world is adequate. Maybe, maybe not Russia, but the rest of the world is adequate. And then the EU looks at that and says, we can't really follow that. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think that there is more alignment than what appears to be. And therefore... That's why I say, don't worry. It's just of all the possible things we, we can worry about, the lack of, the, the loss of adequacy by the UK, is re, it should really be at the bottom of our list because it's very unlikely to happen, okay? Yeah. I, I think there are other more serious things that are more likely to happen. Sure. I think, uh, to take an, a slightly different view on that, what, you, what we were talking about three or four minutes ago when we were saying, you know, during that whole 2018-19 period where we didn't know where the whole Brexit conversation was going, adequacy could have just been something that we, we you know, accidentally happened, a loss of adequacy, uh, or not, not being awarded adequacy, let's say. Um, whereas now, you know, we have this new, like, outside of the EU status, and it's been, you know, thought about a lot. And so, yeah, it does seem like less likely to me now than, than, than then. Yeah, and, and I think, but for example, the, I, my view on this, and this is part of the discussions we're having the, in the DCMS uh, International Data Transfers Group, which is how, do, how can the UK play a constructive role? The, yeah. the, sometimes, again, the hype is all about the UK being disruptive and destructive and, and being, you know, giving adequacies like, just like that. It's not. The UK can and should be playing a constructive role on adequacy and discussing alongside the European Commission and the European Union mechanisms to make adequacy m more agile, for example. And then, and then adequacy is very condescending if you think about it. It's just, I think you are ade adequate. It's such a condescending... Uh, we need to, to, to step away from that. We need to look at adequacy in, in a much more mutual way, mm -hmm. where we say, how can we, uh, with this other jurisdiction, try to understand each other's 
mechanisms to protect data, understand each other's priorities, see what we can learn from them, see what they can learn from us, and try to find agreements and mutual arrangements to protect data, to sort of control government access to data, which is the big obsession at the moment, like how to, how to politically ensure that democratic countries look at these issues and, and have uh, and give citizens, all of us, the power to, to have a say and all that. So there's a lot that can be done. And the UK and the EU and many and most of, I would say, every single other democracy would be aligned in their thinking about, about this. So there's a lot. Uh, we need to go beyond this um, award of adequacy as a, as a prize that you, you, you win yeah. and more about making sure that there is greater connection about in the way countries around the world deal with personal data. That's very interesting point. I think it almost feels dated to talk about adequacy in the way now you've described this kind of very pragmatic way forward. Now we have a lot of countries with you know, framework, data protection frameworks that have been created in the last few years and others developing them now. It seems like adequacy is something of a bit of a relic in, in that sense, the way you describe it. Um, tell us a bit about the, uh, the International Data Transfers Council. You just dropped in that you're involved in that. Can you tell everyone what it is and, and your role in it? So it's, uh, it's a very interesting group of people. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating to hear what... Imagine it's like all of us getting together and then we sort of talking about our favorite topic, yep. <laughs> international data transfers, <laughs> and then trying to, to contribute, literally contribute the best that our brains can deliver on this topic. So that's what okay. it is about. From the point of view of, of, of this CMS, it's a bit like herding cats, because <laughs> everyone is, is coming for their own, from their own point of view, yep. and I'll say something and someone else will say something. So I think the, the, the discussion at the moment has been very sort of blue sky thinking about what are the, the priorities, how to approach them and, and all that. And I think we're, we're getting now to the stage where everyone um, has now knows, we all know each other a bit mm -hmm. better. And it's for, I think, DCMS to try to say, okay, this is the agenda. Now help us deliver this agenda in a way that suits not just us, our political priorities as a government, but the real world priorities in, 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 in from all, all of these angles. And is that like post-adequacy, if you want to call it that, is that an, a, a theme or an idea that's come out of those discussions, or is that something that you've been thinking about for a while? I just thought about it right, right. now. <laughs> okay, yeah. the first. <laughs> you heard it here first. Oh, that's a super interesting point, so... Um, Cool. Let's go on to data transfers then. So um, one of the, we're not going to, we haven't got time and uh, it's been discussed a lot of other areas in the conference, but there's a lot of um, areas to data, UK data protection reform. Alexis, you mentioned a few, kind of ropers, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, let's talk about the data transfer side of things. Can you just bring us up to speed with a few of the developments, you know, we've seen on, on, on the data transfers area recently? Yeah. In the UK. yeah, I mean, I think we're all we're we're all very <laughs> familiar with things like uh, by now. We're it's something that we spend most of our days doing. Um, we've we've had um, the IDTA from the UK come into force this week. It was um, in draft form for a while. We're still waiting on the finalized guidance we heard this morning from uh, a transfer risk assessment perspective or transfer impact assessment perspective from the ICO. Um, looks like it'll be out in the next couple of months. Um, but alongside the IDTA, we've got the addendum, right, to our EU SECs, which I think um, was probably uh, one of the things that I know 
um, I was speaking to a lot of our customers about that they were in anticipation of, and in fact, utilizing, um, you know, and having a look at the draft version uh, before it got finalized. I know you were talking about that, Eduardo, a few months ago as well, when it came out of, well, we're in the middle of doing a whole, you know, SEC revamp, um, and now we've got a draft addendum out, what should we do? Clients coming to you and asking you what to do with it, and, um, you know. But that's a really good example of, um, I mean, it's a very narrow issue in a yeah. way, but a good example of um, a sort of mini challenge that organizations face that over the past almost year or so, at least in the past nine months, a lot of organizations and probably many of the people here will have been working on implementing contracts, integrating the new version of the EU SCC. Uh, whether within the group or with uh, vendors and so on. And that takes time, and then you think whether you need to add some additional measures to make it SREM2 compliant and all that. And then people think, oh, the UK, we need to do something about the UK. Is the UK going to be covered by the EU SCC? But of course, it's not longer part of the EU. So what do we do? And you know, the ICO sort of came to the rescue and said, yeah. "Don't worry, guys. We've got we've got it all covered." And, but um, I think uh, the, so. The question here is how to ensure that this uh, it's like you know paperwork exercise. Yeah. I mean, it's not just paperwork. I think it's the, it's this is easily dismissed as space paperwork, but it's not because it's a it's a way of organizations putting their house in order. Yeah. And then the question is how to ensure that those measures that are reflected in that contract, which are a lot more than the words on, on, on a piece of paper. It's, you know, when you read the, the standard contractual clauses, it's a mini compliance program mm -hmm. in, in a contract. So the question is, how can the UK, as a non-EU member state, benefit from that process that is ongoing? It's not a, it's not a difficult exercise to, to, be, to become part of when all you are trying to do is to say, well, look, if organizations are using these contractual mechanisms to legitimize international data transfer wherever the data is going or is flowing from, let's make sure that this document that is being put in place also works legally for UK transfers. And then is where you just need to apply a little bit of imagination and creativity and common sense as well to ensure that whatever is said there, you can interpret it as also applying to transfers of data from the UK. And, uh, and the other point that I have to make is that the UK needs to be confident to acknowledge that you can sort of <clears throat> piggyback on the work of the European Union. It's not, you know, I don't think it's incompatible with being outside the EU. Uh, you know, I don't think Switzerland feels less Swiss or less independent because they say, oh, if it's good enough for the EU, it's good enough for us. Why can't we just say the same thing? And sometimes maybe they will say the same thing about things we do in the UK. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, th I think it's all about a bit of confidence. Mm. Just going away from your the practical side of things, Eduardo, because I'm coming back to your point on adequacy being an outdated con uh, um, like description and context for the way we should be describing things. Are SCCs outdated? 
love the way you're putting Eduardo on the spot. I it's am, usually me that does. Because, <laughs> you know, the way you, it just made me think the way that you were describing SECs in terms of, you know, it getting dismissed as um, a papering exercise, a repapering exercise. Obviously, everybody in this room that's been through uh, a TIA, it's not a simple process. It's um, uh, putting your house in order. It's a, a lot of effort, a lot of resource, um, and especially at, at over the last couple of years, and therefore it does act as this mini compliance document, as sure. it were. But it's just that the result happens to be in this contract between. And but, so is there another way of looking at this exercise and a, another output? Should there be another output to recognizing that an organization has put in place and has examined all of the issues around the protection of data and how we're transferring it. And this is sure. a little bit to your point uh, uh, over the years of the relevance of binding corporate rules, which maybe we haven't seen much of an uptake on as was kind of expected in a way when it was codified under the GDPR and other things like codes of conduct and certification mechanisms that we haven't really seen come to fruition from a transfer's perspective specifically. So I, I think this is something you're talking about with the council, you know, there, what are the other ways of having a look at mechanisms for transfers? Well, uh, what are the other ways or what are the right ways? You right. see, I think, I think the problem sometimes is that we are so narrow-minded. <laughs> we think SEC is paperwork. BCR is too complex, and codes of conduct is an achievable target. And we have these assumptions, and we're so narrow-minded about it that it's very difficult to get out of that. First of all, SCC, particularly the new, the new version of the SCC, is an amazing tool. You know, uh, uh, the thing is, we, we are, we've been waiting for over a decade, right, after SREMS 1, after the GDPR, after SREMS 2, for the SEC, we get the new SEC, and it's like, oh, how much work now? We need to repaper all these contracts. Come on, let's look at the, the SEC. You, first, you need to read them, yeah? <laughs> but um, they are an amazing tool. These, all these headaches that the Shrems to decision have caused around transferring assessment and uh, um, additional safeguards, the SEC is the biggest part of the response to that. The whole point, the, 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 the European Commission will have probably issued the new standard contractual clauses before yeah. SREMS 2, yeah. if it wasn't for SREMS 2. Yeah. And the reason why it took another year to issue the SEC is precisely to address, the, the, the court was super helpful in saying, look, the old standard contractual clauses are really not suit for, for purpose in the new sort of post-Snowden post era. So this is something you need to address. And the European Commission got to work and delivered, and delivered a document that actually is the most powerful way of addressing government access to data, in, in the, in, again, in the SREMS2 way. So that's one point about the SEC that is often forgotten. You are uh, asking about uh, binding corporate rules. We need to go back to basics almost with binding corporate rules. Binding corporate rules have been around for 20 years. Yeah. And it was a creation by the data protection authorities. You know, frankly, credit 
to the DPAs in, in, in the early 2000s for having the creativity to say, oh, isn't, this is not even mentioned in the directive, but what if we come up with this concept of some kind of internal code of conduct or internal set of rules for companies to apply globally. And if they apply this globally, then therefore the protection follows the data, and this is great. And we can delegate all this work to the companies themselves. Amazing, I mean, I've just explained it in 30 seconds. Why do we complicate things so much with referentials and application forms and all these processes and all that? You know, we need to rethink yeah. Yeah, and um, frankly, this is one of the uh, advantages that the UK could have in rethinking how to approach BCR. And the B um, BCR, BCR you, you look at, um, there's one article in the GDPR, Article 47 of the GDPR. And if you read the requirements, I think they have maybe 14 or something like that requirements in, in 47.2 of the GDPR. So you read those 14 requirements, and it's up to you how to deal with them. And regulators should be prepared to look at whatever documents are presented in front of them, with a bit of help, obviously, of the applicants, without having to follow a checklist, and, oh, you're, 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 are you doing this and that? And just mm -hmm. actually helping and saying, oh, this one, what we've seen, I mean, they could say, what we've seen with other companies is that they approach this like that. We're gonna, but, and then we leave it up to you, up to you to deploy in, in BCR. We're just giving, we're here to help you make it work. I mean, you see what I mean? It's just like so much easier than it could be, than, than, it, than it is. And I think that's, that's part of the, the, the challenge. We need to leave our assumptions and our narrow-mindedness when we look at the mechanisms of the menu for, for issue, ways to, to legitimize and, transfers. And to talk about how this could be a new approach <laughs> that the, the ICO could take, uh, if we just touch on some of the, the, the changes that are being discussed at the moment. Obviously, uh, now we have a new commissioner in place. Um, Alexis, obviously, we were talking earlier this morning about some of the, I don't know, some of the language used so far and some of the kind of direction that's been hinted at. And what you're talking about is a different approach to how a regulator, you know, uh, kind of becomes involved in helping organizations to, to overcome things. So what have you picked up so far on, on, on John Edwards and, and the new kind of direction I mean, the, the guy has been job for two months, and, uh, yeah. and he comes from a different country, and it takes a while to get used yeah. to this. I mean, I've been here for 30 years, I still haven't got used to it. But, no, but um, um, I think what you, you, I don't think each person provides their own personality and their own yeah. talents and their own skills to the role. I think all, all information commissioners, I've, I mean, I've seen, I think, five, I've met, and work with five different information right. commissioners. And I think they were all amazing professionals in terms of making data protection work in their very different ways. You know, from the days sure. of Elizabeth Franz, who, where nobody knew what data protection was. Nobody had a clue, you know, and you had this Amazing woman that was saying, look, we, this is what data protection is about. And it was like a different language. Yeah. And then Christopher, um, um, Richard Thomas was a sort of uh, a visionary in a way. And, and, and he should be credited for, for the GDPR. What was the point you were making earlier about him predicting, just before we go on, what was that point about you? So he, he saw the direction. So many people may not remember this or may, may remember this. 
there was a time in the sort of mid-2000s where there was a starting to be a sense that oh, we have had a directive for a decade, maybe it's getting a little bit old, a little bit... Uh, and then the European Commission was saying, no, it's good enough, come on, it can still do it. And then um, Richard Thomas, and I think it was 2008, around 2008, mm. issued some kind of white paper, which was very brave, to be honest, on behalf of the ICO saying, this is everything that is wrong with European data protection law, and this is how it should be changed. And for about a year or so, he was criticized and disguised, he's so, so he's speaking out of tone, and you know, why is he doing this? Why, you know, the UK is always so wacky and all that. <laughs> and then two years later, the European Commission said, maybe we should change the directive. <laughs> and actually, these guys in the UK, have, they have good ideas. Yeah. And you know, that triggered, the, the, frankly, the GDPR. So, and, and then, um, then we had... Um, we, should get a, we should get Richard Thomas on a podcast, by the way. You Take him on a trip down memory lane. But then Chris Graham was the, sort of the guy that kind of brought the data protection to the masses because he was very sort of laid back and, and all that. And then Liz Enam was the person that, w probably the, the one that faced the greatest challenge of all because we had, uh, we had Brexit, we had the sure. GDPR, and we had a new, a new framework, and, 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 you know, and the pandemic. And to try to make data protection work in, 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 in that way from a regulator's perspective must have been a massive challenge. Sure. So all, all, all these guys have been working so hard. And I think um, John Edwards is, follows a little bit the trend of down-to-earth, pragmatic <coughs> people who are <coughs> passionate about their job. I mean, the one thing they all have in common, again, in, in, in very different ways, mm. I think they were all very passionate about their job. John Edwards is, is definitely in that category. If you, if you listen to him uh, and what he said yesterday, it's just, just amazing how, how he comes, comes across. So I think not, no radical departure from the history of the information commissioners we have had over the years, but I think he will add his own personality and his own thinking. Was there something hinted at, Alexis, I think you picked it up on, referencing uh, other types of regulators, whether it's HMRC or... Do you remember that point? Yeah, yeah. So uh, he was referencing picking up on, um, you know, some inspiration from the tax and revenue authorities, right, about, I think, to your point, I think you made at the very beginning, Eduardo, of what everybody is concerned about is uncertainty. And I think John Edwards addressed that head on, didn't he? I mean, that was... Uh, the, you know, the, the real content of his speech is that he wants as a regulator and as the ICO to give certainty to everybody. And, um, you know, looking again at being innovative as the ICO has historically done and looking at new forms of that, whether it's through assurance and uh, potential binding decisions on organizations that they can go to and ask questions um, and receive, you know, a little bit more um, guidance of where to go. Um, and I thought, your, your point there on, on Richard Thomas, Eduardo, is um, very interesting in the context of, you know, EU changing its opinion and thinking, OK, well, we do need to have a look at the GDPR. And obviously, it's, it's a little bit different for the ICO now. And for John Edwards, it's kind of the dawn of a new age, I suppose, as the ICO not being in, OK, I know it's been a while, but they're not in the EDPB anymore there and you know towards this this influence on european law you know to your point as well on you know adequacy if we can call it adequate i'm gonna feel 
weird calling it adequacy from now on. Um, <laughs> Patronizing. <laughs> but, um, you know, the UK's approach to adequacy, whether that has an impact on the EU's approach, because, you know, we haven't had maybe as many adequacy decisions as some organizations would like. Um, and maybe we will see a, a different approach to that where as again John was saying, wants to be more agile, wants to be fast paced, wants to keep up with, you know, how organizations are handling their challenges. What do you think is going to be the impact or how does the ICO, I guess, manage um, that difference now that they're not part of WP29, EDPB, in conversations in an international context? I mean, I'm sure um, John Edwards will know how to do his job. It's not for me to tell him, but I, I think, in a sense, it's, it shouldn't be too difficult because you start from the premise that all regulators are on the same side. You know, they're all trying to achieve exactly the same thing. And in some cases have identical powers, which means that they have identical challenges in terms of mm -hmm. resources, pressure from, from, from the, the media, you know, the, 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 the amount of uh, sort of trolling even that some of these data protection authorities have been under. You know, including our previous commissioner, uh, Helen Dixon in Ireland. So they, are, they, they, they have the same challenges. Um, and you have to go and, and, and try to, it's like, like all of us, to be honest, how to how, show people that they can trust you, that you are there to help, you're there to contribute. And frankly, everyone here, we may have slightly different jobs, but we all have the same objectives. And we're all trying to help organizations get this stuff right and achieve the golden goal of making sure the data uh, is, is, can serve its purpose in, in our information world and, uh, and at the same time our privacy is protected. So it's, it's, that, it's, it's, it's a simple premise. The regulators need to really acknowledge each other's efforts. And I think, again, it's, it's for John to, to show to them that, that he's doing that. And I think the one thing he'll, uh, he'll have to try really hard to show, but again, I don't think it'll be very difficult, is to show that the UK ICO is truly independent. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, the UK government is very keen in, in their efforts to, again, turn data protection into something useful, and, and not that it's not useful, but to demonstrate that data protection can be, can be useful, it's obvious that uh, the government is trying to say, oh, and, and the ICO is an important part of that, and all that. And, and it is true, it is true, and it has always been. But of course, that can be perceived from the outside as saying, well, we have this regulator that is basically uh, a, a puppet of the political machinery behind, behind the UK. Yeah. And I think, again, frankly, credit, we should give credit to, to, to the regulators for having their own brains and their own personalities to show that they can still be an independent regulator and, of course, still align with the policies that their, 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 their jurisdictions are trying to follow. I think at, the end, at the end of the day, regulators are part of the, of the public sector and are there to deliver 
a public sector priorities. So it's not that you can detach entirely a regulator from what a country is trying to achieve. You know, think of Russia, the, the regulator in Russia. You know, they, they, they're trying to achieve what the government is trying to achieve by um, being a political arm. So obviously that's, that's very extreme in a dictatorial regime. In a democracy you have that independence that it's, it's obviously super important, but at the end of the day, as I'm saying, they're all on the same side, and it's just a matter of listening to each other. Yeah, and if you think about, to come back to the whole story of how we got here um, from the political angle, although in the 2016-18 period we were talking a lot about, kind of, from a Brexit point of view, fishing quotas and other kind of topics than data protection, Actually, this uh, where UK data protection reform ends up will be one of the ex best examples to look at. Whether you when you judge when we are all going to judge um, the success or, or failures of, of Brexit, right? And and you know what's the point of Brexit if you can't do things well? We will be looking at our use of data, which is so integral to our economy, as a good example of the you know was it worth it <laughs> in, in a few years' time. So the the ICO relationship with DCMS, I think, is super interesting in that respect because yeah, it has to be it has to allow DCMS to get it right or get it wrong. Yeah, and I think it, again, it's just the the problem is the moment you say, oh, we need to make sure that Brexit delivers benefits. <laughs> Some people will say that that's their mission in life. <laughs> Other people will say that's an impossibility. And it's very difficult to get away from it. So I would say, let's take Brexit as a concept, because Brexit is very emotional. Yep. Let's take it out of the equation. Let's just assume that the UK is a bit of an experiment in a way, in the sense that it's a European jurisdiction which happens to be surrounded by water <laughs> and uh, with very creative minds, as, as it has always had, and r playing a really, really important role in the protection of privacy and personal data because it's part of what you know, the, the legal framework ha has always been. And at the same time, at the forefront of technological development and creativity and so on. So that's why I'm calling it an experiment, yeah. because it's really interesting. Polite language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A basket case. And it's nothing <laughs> to do with politics. You know, put, put the politics aside sure. and, and just look at it. I mean, what can this experiment contribute to, to this challenge? Sure. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, we are ra running through this, uh, this podcast. It's, time flies always. We all talk a little bit too much. <laughs> Really, really appreciate you all joining today. Hope it's been enjoyable. Um, personally, one of the things I, you know, I think the guys are the same, really enjoy about working in this space and, and doing this podcast is kind of speculating on things and talking about the political reasons or societal reasons behind data protection law and, you know, why we have these fascinating discussions. And so, yeah, hope that's a taste of um, what we do on the podcast. If you, if you like it, please check us out, uh, That Privacy Podcast. We certainly haven't solved any of the uh, major questions behind UK data protection reform, but hopefully a bit of food for thought. And certainly we need a new word for adequacy. So if anyone's got any suggestions, uh, let us know. Anyway, thanks very much. Thank you. Cheers. That Privacy Podcast, brought to you by OneTrust Data Guidance in association with Hogan Lovells.